Hello, gentle listener. I'm assuming you're listening to this because you're hearing our voices. If you if you're hearing our voices and you're not listening to anything, like you haven't pushed play on a podcast, if you're just sort of or you don't have like headphones in, or like someone hasn't started playing it in like a car or something, you should probably like go to the hospital. Yeah, it's possible you have a miniature person inside you who has put like a signal on your inner ear. You need to start uh, uh, unraveling the conspiracy to to murder you uh, as soon as possible, I think. Just a suggestion. Or the alternate possibility is that you have advanced to the next stage of evolution thanks to a experimental genetic engineering program and that you're communicating on a sub frequency that normal humans cannot hear. Uh, yeah, sort of that. That is another potential option. Uh, but I guess we would be communicating then, not not the the people receiving it, right? Because let's not spoil it. It's already a great connection <laughs> between the two films. To talk about. Right, so anyway, um, this is a podcast. I think you know that, and we know that. Uh, called Project A Plus is about motion pictures, right? Yes. And we watched two films this week, which don't really have much of a connection, um, except for that they're both science fiction films, as we said. So uh, we watched uh, a movie directed by Lennart Ruff called The Titan, which is a science fiction film starring Sam Worthington that was released on Netflix in both uh, good old Oz and the USA, and another film called Inner Space, which was released in the 1980s, <laughs> and which is directed by uh, Joe Dante. The reason we watched it is because... Uh, you made me watch the Titan, so I figured I'd make you watch something too. Uh, so you know, I didn't really have much desire to watch, actually. But oh well. What are you drinking right now? Tea. What are you drinking right now? Coffee. Coffee. Wow. Yeah. I needed a little pick me up. All right. So um, I guess we should start with the Titan because it's the most recent film, right? Yeah, it's the film on everyone's lips. I don't even know when it was released this year. Was it like a few months ago or something? It was in March. Yeah, so it's very topical. So I should introduce The Titan because I forced us to watch it. But I I will explain that the only reason I forced us to watch The Titan is so I could name the episode Remember The Titan. I correctly anticipated how forgettable it was going to be. (laughs) I uh, kind of put off watching it for a while. And it was only because like our episode was delayed that I got round to watching it. <laughs> That's so funny. So if we if we had done it on the original time, we probably never would have watched it. Just... I mean, I, I would have I would have squeezed it in if we still committed to that time. But honestly, you could have watched it. You did. You could probably just read a plot summary on uh, Wikipedia and get the same experience of watching it. So probably a better experience than maybe, watching it. Maybe, but not a film that necessarily relies on a visual language to tell a story. So it's not a film that relies on having watched it. <laughs> <laughs> It's not a film. <laughs> <laughs> Hugh, uh, my memory, I think I hit my head a little too many times. Uh, I was hoping, could, do you think you could help me uh, remember uh, the Titan a little better? Okay, so the Titan is set in the future. And um, as usual, Earth is some sort of post-apocalyptic wasteland. There was one reference to the nuclear war, but... Society, as it stands, has not collapsed yet. It's like on the verge of... So you could say Earth is on the precipice of its demise. Just like how uh, the Olympic gods push the Titans to the precipice of death. Um, So the powers that be are exploring alternatives to preserve the human race, then obviously just remaining on Earth and dying. And one of these alternatives, the only one we get to see in the film, is to develop a race of superhumans 
through genetic manipulation that will allow human life to survive on the planet Titan, which is apparently the most viable alternative to Earth within the solar system. So it's one of the moons of Saturn. As it stands, uh, human life would not be able to survive on the planet because of its extremely cold temperatures and proliferation of methane gas and stuff like that. Uh, So Sam Worthington is an ex-soldier signed on to be part of this program in which he submits to uh, genetic manipulation by Tom Wilkinson. And... uh, he turns into a monster. <laughs> the end. <laughs> Wait, I, thought, I feel like there's more to this movie. <laughs> I mean, that's that's it. Like the so most of the film is is following um, Sam Worthington and his family, primarily his wife, played by Taylor Schilling. Yeah, who added to the sort of Netflix feeling of this because she's obviously best known for uh, Orange Is the New Black. So the film. Uh, it sort of switches perspective to Taylor Schilling investigating exactly what's happening to her husband as he goes through this physical transformation to become someone who could flourish on the moon Titan. So Sam Wellington's part of a team of other strong people that have been selected from around the world because of their ability to survive difficult situations or something. Um, And it becomes apparent that... uh, no one is expecting that most of the people in the program to survive these transformations. Um, and some of them become violent and have to get murdered by soldiers. Murdered! Yeah, I mean, killed by soldiers to stop their rampage. Until all that's left is Sam Worthington. The Ubermensch himself. The film is basically Sam Worthington's um, transformation into a shitty Star Trek villain. <laughs> yeah. That's what the makeup reminded me of. Anyway, that's the film. It's great. It's real good. <laughs> Do you have anything to say about this film? <laughs> it reminded me a lot of Anon, even though I like this slightly better than Anon. I think I enjoyed Anon more than this, like in terms of the experience of watching it. I mean, this movie does have like it's less misogyny, so I guess that's good. It, it's similarly how like Anon took place in a just stupid future. Well, it has a similar sort of sterile, open space kind of feel. Yeah. Which is to say, it just feels very unimaginative and dull. Which may, may be how the future will actually be. It, it feels very closed off and insular. Um, so you don't really get a sense of the broader world. No. And uh, similarly, it's just sort of like modernist, really boring, a lot of glass and stuff. It's just it's very dull. I mean, I guess it's supposed to like the, the sort of clean uh, design. It's supposed to contrast be- between like the like supposed body horror of the rest of the film, right? But it never really gets quite horrific enough to really be, like, scary or interesting. I mean, given this, like, idea, I just want, like, David Carter, it would have been better, if not actually good. And I think that was the only part of the screenplay as written that could have been moderately enjoyable if it was a bit sillier or something. Or if, it, I mean, if they let the effects be grosser. Yeah. I mean, there wasn't one element uh, of the body horror stuff that I thought was so funny that I literally burst out laughing when I saw it the first time. Uh, which is, <laughs> uh, they're they're doing like a test, and part of the reason why uh, Titan is so uninhabited is because it's covered in like oceans, right? <laughs> and so, in order to survive in the oceans, they need to become really good swimmers. Uh, so there's a secret they're like doing a swim test, and like they all get out of the water, but Sam with his his behind, he's like, no, I'm gonna try one more time, and then he swims like a fish, and he turns into a computer fish man. 
<laughs> it's so funny. He's still got his Sam Worthington body at this point. He doesn't really lose it till the very end. But the way they make him swim through the water, aided by CGI effects, is kind of like dolphin-like, I guess, or something. Maybe like a seal. Like it sort of has that undulating body shape through the water. Yeah. It just looks really silly. Like it would make a great like gif, I think. <laughs> Has there been a movie about this, about this sort of experiment that where anything goes right? Like, I can't think of a single one. Which is, like, it's fine to be, like, a negative and alarmist towards science. Or specifically, like, this sort of, like, dumb science. Because oftentimes a lot of, like, evil tech companies will make themselves seem attractive by uh, promising, like, sort of utopian vision. So it's good to puncture that, but... I don't know, it'd be more interesting to do a film where it, like, works out, I think. At this point. Hmm. Uh, what did you think of our boy, Sam Worthington? Watching Sam Worthington in this film does make you question why he's an actor. <laughs> he has, like, no presence at all in this movie. Like, it looks like he's asleep for the most of it. I think he might have said a similar comment to me while you were watching it before and I, I'd seen it, but I could barely understand a word he said. His accent is bizarre. It really is. Because, I mean, obviously he's going for an American accent, and he seems to be doing it a lot of, like, a... I think people who are not Americans, which is just sort of trying to be like uh, grizzled and, and like cumberbatching it or humoring it or something. Yeah, it's because it's easier to hide the flaws of your accent if you speak in a lower register yeah. and sort of incorporate grumbles and within it. So it kind of obscures the accent with a bit of noise. I think I, I, think I found out why it was cast in this. I forgot that he was in the uh, Clash of the Titans remake. <laughs> I didn't even think of that, actually. Yeah, there you go. So, yeah, so he's putting on this deeper voice, even than his normal Australian speaking voice, which is somewhat deep as it is. Can't say I'm familiar with his normal Australian speaking voice. But, yeah, he's so he's, he just sort of, like, grumble whispers his way through the lines, that, and you, you, can't, you can barely understand it. <laughs> but I, he doesn't have a lot of dialogue, so it doesn't really matter, <laughs> honestly. No, and then, he, and then he's robbed of the power of speech <laughs> at a certain point in the transformation. Oh, no! It's such a, such a tragedy. <laughs> Um, and they, they make that comment like he was like communicating on a, a suboral level and I was like, well, he was before as well. <laughs> like, what's the difference? There's not much of a difference between his performance like before he started to a monster and his performance after he started to a monster. Um, my favorite actual thing about about him and his character is the character name. Oh yeah, it's so funny. <laughs> which is one of those names that immediately leaps off the page as like a fake name. Um, it actually sounds like a video game protagonist, really. Like, but his name's Rick Jansen. <laughs> it, almost, it almost sounds like a uh, like an Arnold Schwarzenegger character. I love, I love the way that you can always tell when they've invented a name. It's, it's all, it always sounds slightly wrong. Yeah, it definitely does. But it, like as we said, there's like basically nothing to this movie at all. There's nothing that it's like, it's, it's, it's competent in the way it's, it's shot and, and put together, but it's incredibly unexceptional. Can I tell you my other favorite moment besides the fish bit? Mm. So there's a scene where, um, Taylor Schilling is, uh, concerned about the ethics of the experiment and is like rooting around the, uh, the laboratory of the main scientist is played by Tom, Tom Wilkinson. She comes across like a, uh, a printout of like, uh, field test results or whatever, right? And uh, <laughs> all the all the important information that she needs to know is like been written on the page in like a red marker. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> I agree. It is hilarious. Yeah, like she opens the book and like in capital letters, 
like in between the small print of the actual printout page of whatever the information is supposed to be. Mm. Tom Wilkinson has like written these easy to understand goofy like descriptions of what's going on. And like there's a uh, there's a secondary character who after he, when he oh, oh, excuse me, when he um, is undergoing the, the trials uh, is uh, becomes increasingly violent towards his, <gasps> towards his wife. And the way that they uh, help illustrate this to the audience is that one of these written things on the file that says just says a violent it's like uh, yeah. <laughs> it's very funny it's just it's just like so lazy and that is indicative of the type of exposition to expect from this film um, i mean the, the opening section as you'd expect has a bunch of newsreel footage to explain what's happened in the world and uh, justify it. And it, it, it happens like uh, in three different segments. Like it shows like a, a news section and then they do like a speech at the start of the program, etc., etc., etc. And I just hate, I hate exposition like that. I just, whenever I see like newsreel footage at the start of a sci-fi film, I'm already out. It's only good when it's done in downsizing. The, great, the greatest I've ever made it's a dumb screenplay and and nothing about the way it's executed redeems it there are some there are some shots that i kind of were like yeah that's okay like there's one shot that's stuck in my mind for some reason of like taylor shelley like walking down a staircase or something that's like shot somehow or it's like reflected so and then so it's like you're watching her like walk down it's shot it's like been um bifurcated somehow i don't know what i'm talking about it was great stuff i don't even know what i'm saying so yeah <laughs> i was i was incredibly disappointed though uh that when we we were our finally showed sam worthington's like um alien body that we didn't see his penis i agree we just see his his butt though <laughs> um there's there's some other details in this that are just really stupid like uh, at one point um sam worthington's and and taylor Schilling's kid <laughs> Is watching a trip to the moon or on on a little iPad thing. Oh, I didn't notice that. It just seems ridiculous. The the moral dilemma posed by this movie too is like, no, he shouldn't have to sacrifice his kid and his his relationship with his family for the future of humanity. It's like the experiments that are con- as conducted like are shown to like work right at the end when he goes to Titan. Spoilers, I guess. So like, I don't understand why I was supposed to be like, oh my god, I'm so <gasps> upset that. He was experimented on without his consent. But like, um, the way this 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 plot progresses is that as Taylor Schilling is investigating exactly what what's happening with this program, it's kind of revealing maybe it's it's moral corruption. Yeah. At the hands of, of Tom Wilkinson, it seems to be what it's, what it wants to say that like, what he's doing is actually is, is not the right thing. Um, even if the overall mission to save humanity, you know, might be the the right big picture goal, but he's going about it in the wrong way. Oh, something I don't know. I don't know what it's trying to say in black and white terms. Tom Wilkinson is the bad guy. Yes. Taylor Schilling is representing the, the moral side. So there's this point where they, they capture Sam Worthington after he's escaped and they put him in this container. And um, Tom Wilkinson is saying all that we can really do now is, you know, erase his memory through a chemical castration no, a chemical, chemical lobotomy process. <laughs> Shouldn't say chemical castration. A, a, a chemical lobotomy that erases his his memories and, and ties to Earth. Are you saying a castra- castration is equal to you to a to, to a lobotomy? Yes, yes, yes. It's a Freudian slip. Wow, you're so much. You're you're so uh, so virile. Yeah. <laughs> so so virile. That's what I think of when I think of you. 
Yeah, me too. <laughs> okay, so so Tom Wilkins is trying to convince her to chemically lobotomize Sam Worthington so that he can lose all ties to Earth and be able to accept his mission and go to Titan to, to help the greater cause of humanity, right? But instead, she injects him with a placebo and lets him escape and murder people, which is like, okay, that seems like an odd <laughs> choice to make. But then they have their cake and eat it too, because then it just cuts to a bit later on and, you know, some other government agency or something has taken over this program and now it's the Titan Mark II. It's the good one. And uh, they've sent Sam Worthington off anyway, so he has fulfilled the mission despite all this chaos that ensued. Yeah. And uh, it seems to be working. And great, that's the end. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> it's a really... So, from a moral perspective, it just makes no sense. Yeah, yeah. I guess you had to be saved. So, like, and thanks to Tom Wilkinson. Yeah, exactly. You should go down as, like, the savior of humanity, essentially. But honestly, honestly, this is not trying to articulate. He's like, I'm on Tom Wilkinson's side in this movie, <laughs> for the most part. Like, I mean, yeah, it's shitty that you're, like, experimenting on people, like, illegally. But, like, again, if your experiment is, like, the thing that saves the world, like, is it sacrificing a couple of, like... Stupid soldiers, like, worth it? Like, I don't... I don't know. I guess his only flaw was that he wasn't transparent. The last shot of this film is uh, Sam Wellington, the monster, on Titan, doing his thing. After he swims like a fish, he flies through the air, um, which is actually conceivable on Titan. Because mm, the gravity is... The gravity is, is low and the air pressure is conducive to flight. Um, but I think you would need more than just like webbing mm. from your underarm to your torso. You'd need a proper wingsuit to take advantage of it. Wait, are you saying this movie is not uh, entirely accurate to science? <laughs> yes, I am. Wow. I'm making that bold claim. <gasps> that's, that's ridiculous. God, I can't stop fucking hicc- hiccuping. Fuck me. Jesus Christ. Although overall, I wouldn't say this is like the worst film we've seen this year. Yeah. But I found it really hard to get through, even though it's not, it's not that long. I just, I just found it like a difficult viewing experience for me. I was very impatient. No, I I thought it was, uh, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't enjoy it, but it was like, it was like a shrug for me. Like it didn't make me feel anything, but I didn't like, I wasn't like, it wasn't like excruciating like some of the other stuff we watched this year. (gasps) God. Well, do you have anything? Oh, do you think I have anything else you'd like to talk about in terms of the Titan? Uh, I don't think so. It's very thin. Oh, I will say there's one thing that I thought was funny. Is that the name of the production company behind it was called Motion Picture Capital. <laughs> <laughs> it just sounds like a fake company. It just sounds like a shell company. Um, you know, the director is my age. Wow. And he's as successful as you are. There's hope for me, yes. <laughs> Would you rather okay? Would you rather have not directed a feature-length film or have directed the Titan? Not not you directing the script of the Titan. I mean, like literally have made this movie. Like as opposed to never making a movie. Yeah. I would rather have like gone through the process of making this film. I think that would be worth the blight on humanity that this film <laughs> represents. Although I think you could certainly have a miserable time making a film, depending on the conditions on the set and, and certain pressures you face. I can't imagine it not being worth the experience on some level, even if it's a really bad experience. Like, I, I think you learn so much from going going through that process that I would always choose to do it. So that's why I'd be even happy to make like a shitty film. If I got the opportunity to. You should make one. I'm sure you get hired to do it. The Jet Li film? What did I say? 
I didn't. I didn't say. I didn't say one. I said the one. You fucking idiot. Yeah, I forgot. I forgot it had the one in it. I thought it was just called one. I did see that at the movies at the time. I love that film. Not a good film. You, have you seen it? It's great. Which one? Mm. Were we talking about the, the one? one? Oh no, I thought we were still talking about the Titan. Oh no, the Titan sucks. Yeah, it does. You should watch the one. If you've got a choice between the one and, and the Titan, they're your only two choices. Like in a future apocalypse, the only two bits of media that survive are the one and the Titan. Choose choose the one. <laughs> yes. You yes. can't have both. I haven't even seen the one and I still would recommend it watching it over <laughs> over this. Picture a box. Just your average everyday box. Except This one doesn't have any marks on it. It's an unmarked box. You don't know where it came from. You don't know where it was going. But I'll bet you'd like to find out what's inside. Join me on Unmarked Box. Every, uh, so often on, uh, off-brand horse. Alright, so, since I did a poor job of introducing the Titan... The other film we watched this week is a blockbuster from the 1980s called Inner Space. It was directed by Joe Dante, who is a director of Summer Down, I think. Though I will admit this is the first uh, film of his that I've seen. Have you watched any other Dante films? Um, so, yes. So I've seen both Gremlins films and this, and that might be it. Inner Space is a movie. I guess you could call it a movie. You could call it a movie, yeah. yeah I think it fits that definition. Starring Dennis Quaid, Martin Short, and Meg Ryan. It's a film about a military test pilot, played by Dennis Quaid, who uh, is involved with this experiment to uh, get shrunken down. And uh, and unlike Ant-Man or Downsizing, it's shrunken to the point of like being microscopic. So it becomes small and then injected into a rabbit uh, for some reason... They don't really talk about what the objectives of this experiment is. They're very cavalier with the science and the fact that they've got this technology. <laughs> it's not really a big focus of the film. It's endearing. <laughs> I found it endearing. Yeah. But anyway, allow me to finish the fucking plot synopsis. Jesus Christ. Um, Meg Ryan plays his uh, sort of on-again, off-again love interest who uh, hooks up with him at the beginning of the film and then tries to distance herself from him yeah so she gets on again she gets on him again and yeah, off uh, him again uh, sorry uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah it was good in my head and then it didn't it come out it's great it's great it is it's a perfect joke when this experiment is is happening did his quite get struck down uh put into a um syringe he's about to be injected to the rabbit and then a group of armed men break into the i guess armed men and women break into the lab kill or I guess knock out a bunch of doctors with these bizarre sort of fire extinguisher weapons. There's <laughs> another like weird science thing in this film that's never explained. They knock them all out, but uh, they fail to subdue the lead scientist who escapes with miniature Dennis Quaid in a syringe, um, where he runs to a it's like a shopping mall, right? Mm-hmm. This sort of the story of Dennis Quaid getting shrunk down is an uh, intercut with the story of a. Uh, Martin Short, who plays uh, the improbably named Jack Butter. And also, Dennis Quaid also has a very improbable name, which is Tuck Pendleton. <laughs> Some good names. And Martin Short is sort of a nebbishy, uh, anxious type who is introduced like, uh, 
basically having what's it, what's it called when you think of uh, it's sort of a hypochondriac, right? Yeah. And his his doctor's office. And his doctor recommends that he take some time off work and go on a vacation and avoid excitement. So yes. So he goes to he goes to something that I assume does not exist anymore, which is a travel agency to buy uh, tickets for a. It was a cruise, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a cruise. Uh, and there's a bit that I quite liked, which is like it goes like oh, maybe some romance. And it's like it has to be unexciting romance, which is pretty funny. I thought it was funny anyway. It's even funnier the way you delivered it. Yeah, thank you, thank you so much. Um, obviously, I've a lot invested in this this movie, but so as he's leaving the uh, ticketing office, the travel agency. The weed doctor is being pursued by a man who has a robot arm. I couldn't decide for most of the movies if he was a robot or like a just a you know, robot arm. But I guess like the end of the film sort of suggested he's a, a cyborg and not a not a robot. Uh, so he's pursued by him. He gets shot, and then this uh, last sort of dying act uh, injects the syringe uh, containing Dennis Quaid into Martin Short's uh, buttocks. And Dennis Quaid, discovering this, figures out how to communicate with Martin Short, and then um, sort of does whatever. I don't know. <laughs> no, he, he instructs him on how to make him big again, and that's the movie. If you have a vague idea of what this film is about, it can be easy to come in with the wrong expectations, I think. Yeah. And if you think this is going to be a straight-up Fantastic Voyage ripoff, which it was in conception, the reality of the film actually turns out to be quite different. The one thing I think that it's worth stating about this film, it comes executive produced by Steven Spielberg. And if I think about what it would have been as a Steven Spielberg-directed film, I can only imagine that it would be more about the exploration and awe of this process of being you know miniaturized and exploring the human body in this in this craft which does not at all seem to be a concern for the director or screenwriter of, no. of, of this film <laughs> it just I, I i kind of like we, we touched on this earlier i kind of like the fact that the technology and that whole process is kind of an afterthought and he's not given really any room in the plot apparently like, every like science company has their miniaturization machines like perfect <laughs> the whole conceit of like being injected into somebody and, and exploring around the film doesn't really care about it's the pretense for dennis quaid to interact with with martin short and have like zany adventures <laughs> that's basically it like it, it's kind of it's kind of funny that that's what the film turned out to be it's it's such a bizarre like high concept like it's it's pretty much a comedy like there's not like much i guess there are like some action-ish scenes but they always have like a comedic bent to them i think um, I like that one of the original ideas for this film, before it became what it was, when they were thinking of casts and all that sort of stuff, and, and had a previous version of the script, mm-hmm. um, they originally thought it was going to be Michael J. Fox inside Arnold Schwarzenegger's body. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that sounds better. What did you, what did you think of Martin Short uh, in this film? I, th- I thought he's, he's, he does a decent job. Being Martin Shaw. I guess that Clifford is like a different, because uh, it has like a level of like creepiness to it. Uh, but it, it definitely reminded of his performance to Clifford a lot. I mean, that he kind of brings a similar energy to all his roles. But there's a scene where like he dances a lot, and I was like, this is just the Clifford dancing scene, mm. but it's now it's in inner space. But yeah, it, it seems like all, all the principles are pretty much playing like to their types. It's like Dennis Quaid's like a out of control alpha man, and Meg Ryan's like a. 
I don't, I don't really know Meg Ryan's type, to be honest. I don't, I, this might be the only movie I've watched that she's in. I've seen quite a few of her romantic comedies. I know, because you love how much you love uh, romantic comedies, which she is obviously known for. I wouldn't say she's a Meg Ryan type, just because she's not given much to do in this film at all, beyond beyond being a woman, really, who Dennis Quaid is attracted to. And my favourite scene in the entire film when he goes inside her and like, she's got a baby! Which, how he got from her mouth to her baby parts is not explained. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was kind of weirded out by the fact that uh, Martin Short reveals to Meg Ryan that Dennis Quaid is inside him. And then... He convinces Dennis Quaid to shut off his transmitters for a moment so he can speak to Meg Ryan. And uh, for some reason, they kiss, even though Meg Ryan knows that it's just Martin Short and that it's not to do with Dennis Quaid. I just found that, like, I, don't, I just quite understand that. I did I did enjoy, I, I, I like this movie, uh, it, mostly because it's like, it's just sort of like a factory that does not get made these days at all. And I kind of enjoyed it as like a, I mean, not nostalgic, because it's not like this is something that I particularly, I'm like, wow, I wish they did more of this, but it just, it's not like a transmission from a different era, which I, I mean, I guess it is. And I, I sort of enjoyed it as like a sociological-like thing in that way, I guess. But uh, there, there are the occasional odd touches in this film that, that make it seem like it odds with uh, maybe a more family-friendly tone that it sort of wants to be. Yeah, like uh, like Fiona Shaw's character is like a sex maniac. And um, the robot guy... Ha- Uses a dildo attachment on his hand. <laughs> that scene is so funny. <laughs> Which is a really strange detail for this type of film. I, I laughed a lot at that, at that scene. I thought it was really great. What did you think of uh, Ant-Man ripping off the, uh, the sort of um, getting shrunk down to to kid size? Oh, the ending of this movie is so weird, too. I mean, that was exactly like Ant-Man and the Wasp, yeah. Yeah. So I think um, it was so funnier in Ant-Man. We should explain it a little bit. It was funnier in Ant-Man and the Wasp. But, so there's a point in this film where uh, the bad guys get trapped in the miniaturization machine. And um, after Martin Shot fumbles with the button, they get reduced to like 5% of their size or something or whatever it was. No, it's 50%, I think. Uh, and they run about town and then just get forgotten about at some point. <laughs> <laughs> there's a scene in which they're they've stowed away in the back of the car that martin short and meg ryan are, are driving and uh they try and interfere with with martin short as he's driving and the bad guy reaches around his face and it's just like silly little puppet hands <laughs> and then by perspective tricks to show them in the back seat of the car i, I just like how i just like how cheap those puppet hands were <laughs> yeah it looked really silly <laughs> yeah obviously it's supposed to be silly it's not, I'm, I'm not criticizing it by saying like but some of the effect shots are quite good. Some of them are less convincing. Yeah, like all the stuff, like all the process shots where like Dennis Quaid is in the body look pretty good. Especially the the bloodstream was was well done. But it's a, except for like the uh, spots where they conspicuously like green screened his face onto the the cockpit. <laughs> that was, those were no good. The composite <laughs> shots weren't very convincing. Yeah, but. Um, the actual filming of the inside of the body was quite well realized. Yeah, and like the the pod inside of it, it looks good. Like the stomach acid stuff looks good too. What did you think of? Did you were you reminded as I was of uh, I was born but at a certain scene in this film? <laughs> Can you guess what I'm talking about? No. <laughs> There's a great scene where they uh, the uh, both Martin Short and Meg Ryan go to a um, a dinner hosted by the villain. He's like the typical like sort of '80s like rich capitalist so and so. Uh, and what the, their dish is uh, a sort of inscrutable combination of like bread pieces and raw eggs 
And uh, for some reason, my son is wrong because it's reminded of the recurring joke in Osborne Butler where the kids eat sparrow eggs. <laughs> Another example of the, the casual way that it treats the science in this film is at, at one point, at one point, Dennis Quaid, uh, in his little ship inside Martin Shaw, utilizes some technology that for some reason he has access to that allows him to reconfigure Martin Short's face so that he resembles Robert Picardo. Um, I, I love that that technology was there, even though the original plan was to insert him into a rabbit and it had nothing to do with, like, being in a human body. That's, like, yeah. But, like, and, like, I like how it's, like, they use it and then they never talk about it again. <laughs> it's almost like a gadget in, like, uh, the old Batman television show. It's, it's like it comes out for a specific usage and then they never use it again or talk about it. And you almost get a little bit of that, that body horror stuff, um, which I guess links it to <laughs> um, the Titan, but I guess more directly the Howling, which Joe Dante directed. So it's definitely more of a zany comedy than a sci-fi adventure film. But I feel like, I feel like that sort of uh, type of film, like these very like high concept comedies, like way more common in the 80s and 90s than they are today, which is a shame. I have a real soft spot for them. Like, where's today's, like, flubber? That's what I want. So, yeah, so I was looking at um, Joe Dante's filmography, and I actually think that this film is Dante's peak. Uh, Great joke. Thank you. Were you reminded of uh, the the scene in the diner in Mulholland Drive uh, with uh, Martin Short's, like, recalling of his dream about the (laughs) the thing that it coming true? It's kind of like exactly the same. <laughs> I really like the scene where uh, there's a, there's a sequence where uh, Martin Short is having dinner with Meg Ryan for some reason. I don't really remember. And uh, Dennis Quaid, he, did, he hasn't revealed to her yet that Dennis Quaid is inside of him. Um, so he goes to the bathroom in order to talk to Dennis Quaid. He's basically talking to himself and he's like looking down <laughs> while he's doing so. And there's another man inside the uh, inside the room who assumes that he's talking to his, his fetus. And he has a, I think it's a great line, which is, uh, play with it, pal, but don't talk to it. <laughs> I like that, uh, it's weird that both Ant-Man and this take place in San Francisco. Mm, that's true. The mecca of small people films. <laughs> yeah, apparently. Uh, let's see, I don't see if there's anything else. Um, there's a weird part where, uh, uh, Dennis Quaid is, like, eating, like, his food or whatever, right? In his pod, and for some reason it's chicken nuggets. I was like, why would they give him chicken nuggets? <laughs> he's in this like pod. He eats yogurt and chicken nuggets. I like that. I like that. Uh, he's basically an alcoholic too. <laughs> so shall so we finish the inner space? Let's dissolve it in stomach acid and uh, move on to the next segment. Definitely, I I would say definitely worth a watch if you're a fan of like these sort of zany science fiction comedies. Definitely more tolerable than the Titan, <laughs> even if it is a bit long. Uh, yeah, it is a bit long. I remember like getting to certain points of the film and looking at the remaining time and going, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like the tone that it's going for works better in shorter bursts. Like the, I think it would have sustained its length better if it was a proper adventure film. <laughs> it's just so crazy to me that that uh, the main like through line of this film is not <laughs> people can be chugged down. Like, not really. You could have accomplished the same thing with, like, giving him, like, a radio device or something and, like, Dennis Quinn is, like, locked away. Or if, like, Dennis Quinn is, like, made invisible or something like that. You know, like, it would have accomplished the same. Like, there's no reason for them to become small. And Dennis Quinn would have had a pretty easy time shooting this film. Although I did read that in order to 
I mean, in order to enhance the chemistry between him and Martin Short, he was actually on set. Shouting at him. Shouting at him, yeah, while Martin Short was running around, so... Well, it definitely shows in the movie because they have such great chemistry. One thing I, th- I thought was funny, I think I was just reading this on the Wikipedia page or something, but apparently Joe Dante likes to consult with the writers of the screenplay when he's making a film. But the studio usually um, is not willing to pay the extra expense of having the writer present on the set all the time. Sure, sure, sure. So he would cast them in, in minor roles in the film. So they were available to oh, talk to, which is funny. So, funny. Um, so apparently at least some of the screenwriters in his film are in the film as well. Anyway. So what what have we been watching, man? No, you go first. Me first again. Um, so I checked out the first um, surviving film made by Yoshijiro Ozu, which is Days of Youth. I think it was actually his eighth feature film, but it's the only one that survives in total from that early batch. Um, and this was pre-I Was Born But, obviously which many people think is the first crystallization of the, the Ozu style. So Days of Youth is a, is a silent film from 1929. It's a really simple story of two college friends who have designs on the same woman. And it's about them. Most of the film is about them going to the snow to ski, um, where the woman was also going. That's typically where people go to ski. So, And it's a gentle, light comedy. That's enjoyable. Uh, I watched it. With no, it's it's still kind of a bizarre process watching some of these silent films that um, have no soundtrack whatsoever, not even like generic silent movie rinky dink piano stuff. Yeah, I kind of, I kind of find it hard to do it actually, because it's not like the majority of these films are not intended to be watched like silent. I think no, none of the films of the time would be intended to watch silent. No, the, they'd have a accompaniment by. Well, Japanese films are interesting because they had a really popular tradition was having a live narrator who would um, explain what's going on in the film and act out some of the dialogue in some cases. Oh, that's bizarre. That's so funny. And often they were popular in their own right and no two narrations were the same. Like, so you'd get a different experience if you saw the same film from a different narrator. They preferred the type of films um, that were really kind of static and not very cinematic, like shot from a distance, no cuts in the scene, so that they could you know, fill that space with their descriptions uh, and it would be easy for the audience to follow. Whereas when films got more cinematic and complicated, it was more difficult for them to assert their personality coherently, which is kind of a, it's a a really interesting history if you, if you look into the early days of of Japanese silent cinema. But anyway, I'm not sure what the effect of what it would have been like uh, back in the day to see this film or, but it's a solid film. Like it's enjoyable. Uh, it's definitely not up to Ozzy's best work as you'd expect. So it's not a, it's not, it's not one of his, uh, like an Oz boo. You wouldn't say that much, would you? A what? <laughs> Oz boo. Oz boo? <laughs> like boo, <laughs> you're booing the film. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> that was so good. Wow. Wow. Okay, wow. <laughs> that sounds like a joke that you would make. So yes, if we go by that metric, I did not Osboo during this film. <laughs> uh, I also watched a film I've been meaning to watch for years, and now I don't know why I wanted to watch it so much. But anyway, it was Kicking and Screaming. I just heard that uh, Noah Baumbach's first film was, was good. Oh, not, the, not the Will Ferrell movie. I've seen that Will Ferrell movie several times. <laughs> After watching the Noah Baumbach version of Kicking and Screaming, I I have a feeling that I probably prefer the Will Ferrell version. 
<laughs> That's pretty funny. So Kicking and Screaming seems like a post-Walt Whitman film, very much in his style, mm. but a little bit funnier, I would say. Um, some of the dialogue is snappier. There's some decent lines in the screenplay, but I found it really hard to care or be interested in these preppy characters. In fact, one of the actors is in a few of Walt Whitman's films, which is also a bit disconcerting and it didn't help distinguish itself. Uh, yeah, so I, I don't know. I just did, didn't really care about the characters in this film. I, I mean, I was similarly like lukewarm on, on Walt Whitman, but there's kind of a, a weird anachronistic flair to uh, Metropolitan. Like it's, the, they don't specify what the era is. It looks like modern day New York, but they kind of act like it's 1920s dinner parties and stuff. So there's kind of a weird conceit in that. Maybe it's a bit more interesting. This is just, I don't know, I just hated it. I mean, you I didn't hate it. I didn't hate it. I just, yeah, just said it, that. It's, it didn't seem like a kind of movie I would like. So I haven't seen it. I prefer, I prefer, I mean, not a big fan of Noah Bumbach overall, but I prefer his later work. Uh, all right, so moving on. I also watched Coupe de Torchon which is a French film from, when was it from? 1981, by Bertrand Tavernier. And it's based on a pulp, hard-boiled novel um, called Population 1280, Pop 1280, by Jim Thompson. Yeah, who wrote, um, his most serious wrote writing The Killer Within Me, right? Yes. He wrote very nihilistic, dark, noir novels. Uh, and so this, this is a story about a... A cop in a small West African French colony. So they've obviously changed the location from the original novel, which I think was set in Texas. Um, so this stars Philippe Noiret. Noiret. Actually, his name is Noiret, which is funny. Noir in his name. Um, and he plays... Uh, he seems like the ideal actor for the show, because we did uh, name this podcast, <laughs> podcast uh, Project Noiret Plus. <laughs> <laughs> yes yes perfect. another torture joke for you you're welcome you're on fire <laughs> i am so he plays yeah. the lone policeman in this town this little small town in west africa and he's a terrible policeman and no one respects him and he doesn't do anything uh, which it kind of transpires later in the film that that was like intentional they didn't want someone who would uh disturb the status quo of this this town so he lets like the local pimps run all over him and all that sort of stuff and then there's a turn in the film and he just starts killing people <laughs> that's fun so it's kind of played as like a black comedy a dark farcical tale but it's kind of redeemed from what it could be which is just like you know that you know those type of black comedies where people kill each other and it spirals out of control and and the the joke is like oh look how dark and funny it is ah. I always I always think whenever I think of movies like that I always think of that terrible um, Simon Pegg movie I think it was an Australian film Kill Me Three Times that's the name of it Yeah that was Australian yeah. Never not not having seen it only having watched the trailer. <laughs> <laughs> but it's still somehow stuck in my memory is that but yeah that's one of my least favorite genre of things is, is those type of dark comedies um yeah i'm not the biggest fan of them either although this is clearly farcical and it, it does have a sense of humor in the way it plays out um it's more existential and philosophically nihilistic which makes it a lot more interesting so it's, it's an enjoyable french noir 
Um, I watched a another Japanese film um, from 1926, which is like a re- interesting, really experimental film influenced by um, German expressionism called... Uh, it's called a few different things depending on which translation you read, but most commonly it seems to be called A Page of Madness. Ah, I've always wanted to watch that actually. It's actually on YouTube, so you can watch like it. Like a decent quality, like restoration. Or it's not like... bad, it's fine. The director, Kinogasa, re-released it in the 70s, I think, and um, put a soundtrack on it. Uh, and there's a couple of versions on YouTube. You can see the 70s version with the soundtrack or someone's put up an original version um, that's just silent, which is the one I watched. The re-released version with the soundtrack is about an hour. If you can track down the original version, which is also on YouTube, I think it's like 80 minutes or so. But it's the exact same film. It's just showed at the correct frame rate. Oh, that's weird. This is the thing I only learned, which I guess I should have known, but I only learned this, you know, reasonably recently when I wondered like what is actually the reason all, all the silent films have that sped up quality. And it's just the fact that there wasn't a standardized frame rate. Yep. So they weren't actually sped up when you watched them at the time. It was just like the cinema was designed to show them at like 20 frames a second instead of 24. Whereas if you show a 20 frames a second film on a 24 frames a second projector, it's going to be sped up. So the one on YouTube is like at a, the correct frame rate. If you can deal with the silence, the Doctor Who enemy? That was a great joke. Um, so A Page of Madness is is about... It's hard to follow the plot. There's no intertitles at all. Um, maybe I'm not sure if it was just this version, but there weren't any intertitles at all to explain exactly what's happened. I mean, the point is not necessarily to follow it in a linear fashion because it is about madness um, and it's set in an insane asylum. And a, a man, a janitor who works there, his wife is in prison there. Oh. I mean, I know some of this later just because I read the synopsis. And apparently he took a job there because he felt guilty and he wanted to look out for his wife or something. But this is not something that's given exposition to in the film release with that. No, like, you know, there's a connection between them, but you don't actually, it's not actually explicit. The style is amazing and it feels very modern for its time with camera effects, amazing expressionistic sets and um rapid editing as well um, and it's an it's a really disorienting but mesmerizing experience watching this film which i definitely recommend and there's a great sequence in which um i mean again reading this later apparently this was a dream sequence of the janitor character but there's a scene where he tries to make the inmates or if i can call the people in an asylum inmates happy by putting like smiley face masks on all their faces which is kind of creepy and really funny yeah it's a great scene so i definitely recommend checking that out uh, i also watched the awful truth the leo mccary film oh not the not the well oh, fuck me i was gonna get a great joke but i couldn't remember what the film was called so the ugly truth yeah 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 not not the much better film so the awful truth is the film that kicked off that series of Cary grant films in which he plays someone who at the start of the film is going through a divorce or has divorced um, the leading woman of the film. But obviously they still have feelings for one another and through his various machinations they end up getting back together again at the end. Um, Because that happens in His Girl Friday, which came after this, and also the Philadelphia story. He is playing alongside Irene Dunn. And she's actually really, really good in this film. Uh, I think she's better than Cary Grant is, in fact. She's the standout performance. And uh, I remember there's, I read some complaints that Cary Grant had when he was making this film because he, he felt like Leo McCary was like 
making it up as he went along. And you don't really get that sense. Like, it, it feels polished. But there are lovely moments, especially with Irene Dunn, in which it sounds like some of her dialogue or the way she's phrased things is partially improvised. So it has that kind of fresh, modern style to it, which is, is very unusual for films of those times. Uh, usually they're... They, obviously, the, the dialogue's usually very snappy and stuff, and, and, like, His Girl Friday is famous for having overlapping dialogue. But that was, like, embedded into the screenplay. They added redundancies on either side of the phrases so that when the actors cut each other off it didn't affect the sense of what you were hearing but that was all like encoded into the screenplay whereas this did seem like it had some elements um certainly with irene dunn where it seems like there's more of a spontaneous fresh feeling to it which is which is interesting to watch and this is a little bit more enjoyable i guess from a a modernist moralistic progressive (laughs) sensibility than some of those other films especially the philadelphia story because both cary grant and irene dunn manipulate one another to try and get back together it's not just cary grant manipulating his ex-wife to get back together with him um, which is a little bit dicey in the philadelphia story because a a running gag in that is that he punched (laughs) Catherine Hepburn in the face so it's basically the film of him getting um his uh ex-wife to go back into an abusive relationship (laughs) but anyway yeah the awful awful truth is is certainly one of the best of its of of that kind of screwball comedy and it's very enjoyable I have to watch it what else did I watch the Titan have you seen that Uh, I haven't do you remember the Titan no I can't I don't remember I don't remember um, they only, only watched one other film, which was uh, Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. <laughs> so uh, I'll, I'll try and justify this decision, right? So I was. I want you to spend the most time. I wanted you to spend like basically an hour talking about this movie. So what I was doing was um, I was feeling snackish. Like we talked about this earlier. So this is a callback to <laughs> my dietary habits. Um, and I had a, a tube of Pringles that I had bought because it was on special. So I'm a most sucker for things that are both on special and that are new flavors that I haven't tried before. This was both. So it was a greatly reduced tube of Pringles and the flavor was buttered popcorn, which I'd never had. Oh, yikes. And now I was thinking of watching like a TV show or something that I enjoy <laughs> to, to drink wine like and Riverdale. eat this thing. But I was like, but I'm like, it's got to be a movie because I'm eating buttered popcorn flavored <laughs> chips. Like it's got to be a film. <laughs> So I dismally like scrolled through Netflix to try and find a film um, that I felt like in the mood to watch. And somehow I ended up <laughs> watching like, Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, which is not a good film by any stretch. It's like, it's like moderately watchable, I would say, for this type of romantic comedy. The one thing that's notable for me is that it came out two years prior to um, Scott Pilgrim versus The World. And... Michael Cera like plays a very similar role to some extent because he is a high schooler who's having romantic issues Mm -hmm. and he plays bass in a band and he has gay friends. So is so basically Scott Pilgrim versus the world is is a ripoff of Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist is what I'm saying. But I mean, I guess that the comic book came out before. No, I'd say the similarities to the film and not so much to the comic book just because it's Michael's Michael Cera I was really obsessed with that film when I was a young man I watched the movie in in, in Arizona of all places Arizona is a really weird place because it's really hot there so most people don't go outside so the streets are kind of abandoned when it's really hot it's interesting I, I would have thought they like used to it so they would like 
leave their house. Yep, yep. Now they can survive in the in the heat. They've actually evolved. It's like, uh, have you heard of this movie called um, uh, The Titan? Dang, what was that? Uh, I I honestly can't remember it that well. Uh, so I don't know, but I think it had something to do with the uh, heat causing people to evolve. <laughs> so they could live in Arizona. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's a historical it's a historical uh, film actually, <laughs> the first settlers of Arizona. So when you were in Arizona, did you see the Sam Worthington monster? <laughs> I did. <laughs> the Worthington, we call him. Yeah. So would you say that his performance in the Titan was not Oscar Worthington? God. <laughs> <laughs> that was as tortured as my OZ joke. <laughs> It's your turn. And I think I only watched two, like, just like last week, I think I only watched two movies that we haven't talked about so far. Okay. I've just been, when I've been like, I'm going to do something to entertain myself, I always choose video games these days for some reason. But it'll swing back around soon, I assume. And now that I've got that new 4K Ultra HD Blu-ray player, <laughs> with that 4K Ultra HD copy of Blade Runner 2049, I'm sure I'll get plenty of, film, I know, your favorite movie of all time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I watched The Incredibles 2, um, which I actually think is kind of like an equivalent version thing to Inner Space, um, and I enjoyed it about the same. It was sort of like a fluffy, light, uh, it's not much of a, it's not as much of a comedy as Inner Space is, but it was like enjoyable enough. I don't know. It was fine. It was very slight, at least to me. Um, I still find Brad Bird, Brad Bird's politics be really weird. He's <laughs> Ayn Randian. Yeah, but like. The the thing is that so many people like rush to defend him, but like the thing that they posit is like what his films are actually about is still like really really creepy to me. So I don't know, but just like his insistence that like no like gifted people can't ever have restraints on them just seems a little, little weird. It's not like tempered by the fact like the way that his defenders sort of like talk about it is like oh, but he also says that they should use their powers to help people, but it's like their will is still like un. Uh, opposed by the film so and people who try to oppose their will even if it is like the moral and right thing to do is are bad guys and it's like i don't know if i necessarily agree that there are certain people in this in the world that are a beyond moral reproach you know uh and that's what the film sort of uh puts forward a little bit um and but it's it's enjoyable enough it's fun and silly and colorful um it's got some pretty good action scenes i do have like i'm not i find i have a lot of trouble with 3d animation just as like a as a like type of film which is weird because i usually i mean i obviously like love playing video games a lot but i find it way more difficult to connect like emotionally to 3d animation when it's like a film than in a video game because i guess because it, i feel like i'm just like watching cutscenes to a certain extent and i think like the way video games get over that is that um you know, you're obviously, like, there's, like, uh, a degree of intimacy that you have to have with the character that you're playing as because you're, like, directly um, dictating their action and stuff like that versus a film where you're not, you don't have, like, that sort of interaction interspliced with, you know, more traditional filmic elements. So it sort of loses that connective tissue for me, and I find it difficult to connect to 3D animation films, 3D animated films at all. So I never really, like, care that much for Pixar. Uh, as a result I've never enjoyed the aesthetic as much as I enjoy like a really good 2d animation is what I'll say like I don't hate I don't necessarily hate all 3d films like on principle or anything like that but I find them like significantly less 
charming than I do to the animation. Yeah, I do too. I mean, it's because like the um, it, it, every frame of a two D animated film just like feels like it was crafted by someone. You know what I mean? Where, like, I mean, obviously that's true about three D animated films as well, but it just feels a little less personal to me. Well, there's. I think it's even. I think with with three um, D animation, there's so much, so many bad examples of it. Yeah, it sort of maybe poisoned the pot a little bit. Yeah, that like the association is still there automatically when I, whenever I see. Um, well, I mean, because because I grew up like on an even worse era of three D animation in games. So. Yeah, you should watch. Uh, <laughs> there's a movie called Food Fight, uh, which I've seen, which is like, it's like a, a a terrible version of like Toy Story about like food mascots for food companies coming to life, which is like. And the animation is so bad. I watched it with one of my friends, and like for the first like thirty minutes, like we spent the entire time just like laughing uproariously, right? And they were like dead silent for the last hour and a half because it was like torture. <laughs> like, have you ever seen? Have you ever heard of the movie called Sir Billy? No. Which is might be Sean Connery's last role, which is a Scottish three D animated film, which is a uh, nightmarish in its in its uh, construction. It's because clearly it, the the cost of doing three D anima- all three D animation well is probably quite inhibitive. So <laughs> just, get... just just look at the poster for Sir Billy. Oh god! Oh god! Oh, it's such like a video game nightmare. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> uh, but that again, that might be like his last film. It's funny because there's obviously terrible 2d animation but for some reason um i'm i'm sort of similar with you like i can't quite disassociate uh, even the best 3d animation yeah. films from the legacy well, but like there's like there's like specific scenes in incredibles 2 which i mean in general is like very well put together that like where the the characters look like character models from those like shitty like movies it's like well, <laughs> i don't understand like how this got in here i and there's just something i just didn't like that much about it what else did you watch? Oh, I only watched one other film, which is a, a film called Thief. Um, we don't have to go too much into because we talked. I talked a bit about Michael Mann when I watched Heat, um, and this is his first film, and it's just the, it's this this great sort of um, low key portrait of a, a master criminal in Chicago played by James Caan, probably his best performance at least that I've seen. Um, it has this great sort of mix between very impressionistic uh, use of like cinematography and score and like mood placed with this like very uh realistic depiction of like chicago and like sort of the the realities of like post-prison life and uh, has this like great like really sort of nihilistic and downbeat ending um and i, I don't know like i think what i've learned i've discovered that i respond to a lot with michael mann films is that they're also often about like characters who are trapped in like structures of like class or sort of a, a roles that have been assigned to them and they've assigned themselves based on, like, their, like, you know, weird moral codes or whatever. Um, and often how about how impossible it is to escape from, like, social structures and stuff like that. And this one's so different. It just has this great, got a great score and just, just, just really, it's just a really, it's just a really goddamn good film. Yeah, great. This is going to be over that. four hours of uh, audio to edit. This will be our best episode yet, I told you. Should we pause? Should we stop the recording? Yeah, probably.